If you are not good enough as a human being to accept and admit that when you say this is impossible, what you really mean is, but I don't want to, then you cannot level up (laughs) into this technological environment that you need to be able to master in a theological way in order to make sure that your human being and all of the sort of culture and civilization that you take for granted is not swept away and replaced with this sort of cyborg enclosure. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to, and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, James, thanks for coming through. You're our very first victim in the new studio here in Austin. I appreciate you coming through. It's a real pleasure. Uh, Let's uh, try to get some blood on the walls here. Yeah, heck yeah. So I spent the whole week reading your book really enjoyed it. I want to start, I think, with some of the big themes in the book. There's a lot there, and I think a lot of interest in my audience. And then I want to talk a little bit more about technology. We'll talk a little bit about things like Bitcoin and Urbit and you know this kind of new renaissance of independent publishing, which you're a part of as well. So I think the best way to start is just to kind of lay out the, the overarching themes of the book. In my reading of it, perhaps the kind of key overarching problematic is, is something to the effect that America was this kind of amazing engine of technological progress, but the technologies that were produced by the unique affordances of American governance and the American spirit are precisely the ones that have now become uh, most powerful in essentially enslaving us. So now American government is enslaved by technology. What more could you say about that? How would you you put the, the key problem that motivated the book? Yeah, well, you know, America was was born in the age of print, uh, and uh, and that, that's that's visible everywhere from just you know the the success of like Thomas Paine's Common Sense uh, right up through you know even even in the Civil War you had uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, it was it was a very print driven uh, public public mind. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville made a big deal about newspapers in America. It wasn't foremost about the news. It was more about the medium and how the medium drew people out of the sort of self-enclosure of their, their own personal world mm. uh, and gave them um, really a platform on which they could organize uh, civil society um, in, uh, in a way that was uh, scaled up enough that that it was really socially driven, but it was you know at at the human scale you know um, of uh, of the city in a sense, uh, and so uh, that was the initial wave of of American life from the standpoint of media, <clears throat> and then you know when uh, when electricity comes along, uh, it really allows for uh, for the conquest of the West. Um, and the civilization of the West, you know, just filling in these vast spaces with with cities and with lights and the uh, the ability to live as if it were day during the nighttime, uh, very revolutionary things. Um, and the the progress of the electric age uh, during that time um, in America, the development of technology was really the development of of tinkerers and inventors. You know, just just more or less ordinary people. I mean, this is the age of like ninety nine percent perspiration one percent inspiration you know mm. uh and uh and around world war ii everything started to change 
um, you got uh, a very small scientific elite uh, heavily weighted toward foreign nationals who were just kind of spirited away from the war zone. Uh, and, uh, and, and they created um, a super weapon. Uh, and the super weapon was in fact so powerful that it could not really be used. Um, and the result of this was, uh, a huge military intelligence apparatus that needed something to do, uh, since it couldn't just use the bomb, they developed, you know, sort of push that technology as far as it would go. Uh, and what does this have to do with media? Well, um, the the arrival of television as a mode of mass communication uh, created a new field of of basically military psychological conflict, um, and the development of electric age communications tools uh, through the the you know mid twentieth century. Um, was really driven by military research and development. Uh, everything from, you know, the, the sort of laser that reads the CDs uh, to cable television, um, you know, even before the internet came along, these were all basically spinoffs um, <clears throat> of weapons that were being repurposed for entertainment. Uh, and as that process unfolded, um, Americans, even at that point, started to become... Uh, alienated from their technologies and they ceased to be tinkerers and inventors and they turned into sort of passive consumers uh, and consumers um, not even in sort of like a, a particularly gluttonous way um, and not even really in the sense of conspicuous consumption that became the target of so much criticism and you know rightfully so in, in his way uh, but in a sort of um, psychologically hypnotic state uh passive in that sense where where the mind and you know you might even say the soul were just kind of laid out for uh for whatever was being poured into it uh by the people and eventually the class that came to dominate um the main institutions of electric media and you know here i'm not just talking about uh, like the big three TV networks, although obviously that was a huge part of it. Um, but I'm talking about, you know, George Lucas, Walt Disney, um, Steven Spielberg. Uh, it, you go back and, and look at the, the main cultural artifacts from that time. Willy Wonka singing Pure Imagination, <laughs> John Lennon singing Imagine, uh, you know, Walt Disney's Imagineers. Um, the... Uh, faculty of the imagination became um, a not just a sort of idol, uh, but a a a a wager on uh, how America would remain the globally dominant force in the world. Mm -hmm. It would be Americans are special because we can dream the biggest and best dreams, mm -hmm. and in virtue of the fact that we can dream those dreams, we can control televisual media this powerful weapon of communication um in a way that gives us the sort of moral um authority to rule the world uh and it worked for a time um 
the thing that 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 caused America to win the Cold War, aside from still more weaponry and, and blank checks, uh, was the power and reach of the television and the way in which English language, American driven entertainment content uh, branded and, and packaged in this sort of ethically uh, supreme kind of way. Um, it did, you know, quote unquote, win hearts and minds. Um, and it did have a formative in- impact on the souls of people around the world. Uh, and so out of this milieu, um, <clears throat> you get a military intelligence uh, complex that uh, is not content to sit back on its laurels and let, you know, televisual uh, media uh, do, do its propaganda work. Um, they were, uh, they were working on figuring out how to preserve continuity of government in the event that, oops, we did end up using those nukes after all. Uh, and so here comes the internet, here comes ARPANET. Um, and here comes, you know, really the skunk works of the military industrial complex, um, building these protocols and hooking them up in a couple major research institutions where they had, uh, significant influence. Uh, and the internet is born. Um, and so what you get out of digital technology is uh, a new, still more powerful weapon, uh, a, a more powerful way of weaponizing communication itself, really at an incredibly abstract level where it's freed from having to uh, root itself in the, the televisual image. Uh, of course, it can include that in sort of the digital bucket. The, the, the digital medium sort of absorbs all, all prior media into it, which is something that makes it so powerful. Uh, and, you know, for, for the people who designed those systems, uh, they were not formed by digital media. They were formed by the prior medium. And so it made intuitive sense to them that, like, we created these robots. Uh, they're going to be our friends. They're going to do what we want. Um, they're not going to turn against us. Uh, we're the inventors, so everything should be fine. We're the ones who have, a, a, in virtue of our, of our um, uh, ethical expert imaginations uh we deserve to run the world and so we will do it with these robots and what could possibly go wrong uh and of course you know well we're we've we've now seen what could possibly go wrong uh the bots do not care about our um our fantasies uh they are indifferent to our souls um and why would they not be because they're not alive and they're they're not ensouled creatures and in some cases they're not even incarnate uh entities um and so the the shock um, that uh, both the the elite and the American people have faced uh, over the past, you know, since since 2007, I guess, since the iPhone dropped, that's when things really heated up. Uh, suddenly, people are realizing, you know, we have thrown ourselves into this cyborg era, um, and the the apocalypse in that sense, you know, it's already happened, and people are just slowly beginning to see it for what. It is. Uh, that is a huge shock for America, and it is 
so painful because we feel as if somehow we tricked ourselves into betraying ourselves and that where we thought we were strongest, we were actually the weakest. You know, it's we, we bet everything on the idea that our dreams were the best dreams and the biggest dreams, mm. the ultimate dreams that l- would lead humanity into a better future. And it turns out that that was actually a bad wager and that we were actually being quite naive and foolish and juvenile about that vision. Um, and to experience that, you know, at a time when <laughs> these entities that we've created um, have recreated, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's these machines that rule the world now more than any human being or group of human beings can rule the world. So when suddenly machine memory is what rules the world and not human imagination, that's breaking people's hearts and making them crazy in America. It feels like they've had their soul ripped out. It, it reminds me of a phrase that Ivan Illich used to say a lot, this idea, I forget the Latin, but it's translated into English as the corruption of the best is the worst. It's like precisely because America was so dynamic, was so confident in the power of its own imagination, that if and when that gets corrupted by something like uh, de- over-delegating to machines, when it gets corrupted, it's it gets corrupted worse than it than than it would be imaginable in other contexts. Uh, precisely because it was the best, its corruption is the worst. Something like that. Uh, yeah, you know, rather than than just stumbling back a few steps and you know having to dust yourself off and carry on, it's this right. experience of this huge collapse. When things go bad, they go bad ethically. <clears throat> this huge feeling of disenchantment and betrayal and 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 uh, confusion mm-hmm. and. It's revealing because, you know, when when electricity sort of burst forth on the scene in the U.S., and this goes back to the Civil War, too, you know, the reason why the Emancipation Proclamation was so powerful was because it went out on the telegraph. Mm. And the reports of, you know, the, the Horace Greeley crowd in New England, uh, you know, all the old free soilers who, who were trying to get Lincoln to, uh, to free the slaves. Uh, when, when the word came out over the wire, um, you know, the, the phrase that I saw in this is in the book and the reports was, and, and then all pandemonium broke loose. Like it was this explosion, you know, the, the way that electricity was used in that way as a weapon of liberation, it was already there mm. in 1863. And Lincoln was our first electric age president. Really? He understood, you know, he spent a lot of time, in the telegraph room of the War Department, just mm. communicating directly with his generals in the field, which was the first time anyone was ever really able to do that right. as a commander. Right. Um, and uh, and so the uh, the way that Americans developed this intimate relationship with technology and felt that it was very rewarding to them. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it always has costs and benefits, but by and large electricity was very good for America. Not so Europe. Mm -hmm. Europe fared very poorly under the, the electric revolution. Hmm. And you know, the, the print revolution also resulted in, in mass death. And you remember what Lenin said about communism being basically the Soviets plus electricity. Yeah. And it didn't work out so well for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we saw uh, half of Western civilization really just be scourged by, by the advent of electricity. Hmm. Um, and now Americans are feeling like, you know, is it our turn? Like, has, mm. you know, have we, have we finally been outrun by these, these larger forces? Okay, fascinating, fascinating. So, the book sets up a very interesting kind of dramatic conflict between these two very interesting conceptual personae. There's this idea of the first generation you describe, and then this kind of antagonist character, 
uh, which you call year zero. Sure. Well, so, you know, I have a son, he's, he's 12 years old, uh, it's, it's coming of age, you know, very, very soon. Um, I'm, I'm doing my best to keep up. Uh, but, um, within that, that general range of, of kids, uh, these are kids who are going to come of age, uh, with no memory of life b- before the digital age. Um, and that makes them the first, you know, one G like the first generation of a very specific and powerful kind. Um, and a lot that's going to unfold in the U S is going to ride on who this generation is. Um, curiously, importantly, uh, this sort of, you know, the, the, the traditional contemporary concept of generations is I think being melted away by the effects of digital mm-hmm. so that, you know, you can have, you can be, you can be based at age 75, <laughs> you can be based at age 15. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, the way that digital um, technology is causing people to understand that the only way to reassert human control over these machines is through theological means. Hmm. That means you got to choose who you're going to worship or what Hmm. you're going to worship. And you can worship, you know, you can worship the, the Borg, you can worship the Christian God. You got a few other options, but really not that many. Um, unless you want to go be a true weirdo living off in seclusion in a bizarre world of your own, but that's not, you know, it's not very appealing right now. Some people want to go live in the woods, but then what? You know, mm-hmm. congratulations, you live in the woods. Yeah. Now we're good. <laughs> uh, and so you, the, the culture war um, under digital conditions uh, is becoming a religious war because this is how you reassert some form of human authority and control over these bots that have just, they're already, you know, innum- the innumerable. They're just flying through the air at all times, passing in and out of our bodies. How many of them can dance down to the head of a pin until about, you know, until, till, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, uh, the properties of these digital entities were reserved for spiritual beings, angels and demons. Mm. <clears throat> so what this means is that, you know, it's, it's not like it used to be where every generation is in a sense at war with the previous generation or feels themselves to have some kind of cosmic mission to distinguish themselves in a certain way as a generational cohort. I think that's going away. Um, but at the same time, like foundings are still important and, uh, and the first, wave of human beings brought into this world to achieve maturity exclusively under digital conditions with no personal memory of what came before that is a decisive moment in our uh in our in our development and in the uh, hopefully you know sustaining um and nurturing and cultivating uh who and what we are right mm. now uh and so what that means is that parents of those kids have a special responsibility um to ensure that this first generation has inherited a sort of collective and personal memory of what did come before. Mm. Uh, That's really important. Now, if you look at the etymology of the word responsibility, uh, what you will discover is that the root word, uh, a very old word, um, the root word is basically the word for repeatedly pouring out libations in a sort of sacrificial uh, ritualistic way. Pour a little liquor out for the homies. Pour a little liquor out for the homies, um, except, you know, really more pour a little liquor out for who or what you worship. Uh, And so, you know, the word responsibility itself is, in that sense, a theological term. Uh, And so, as, you know, parents of this this generation, this first generation of, of fully digital 
people uh, think about their responsibilities, um, they are just going to be um, inexorably turned towards some of these major theological questions, the ones that are raised by a world in which uh, more or less invisible robots um, have, have conquered the planet, the whole thing. Um, that The spectacle of that, the realization that no one person or group of people is ever going to be able to rule the world again unless something perhaps even more cataclysmic happens. That raises fundamental questions about who we are, why we should care, is it worth being human, why should we suffer, where is this going, why have kids, why not, you know, sever your own genitalia? I mean, like, the all of these yeah. sort of primal fundamental questions about our human identity are reopened. But and, it has an optimistic note, doesn't it? At least that's the impression I get from, yeah. from the book. Because in a way, I think what you're really saying is that this is an extraordinary opportunity. It's Absolutely. kind of like the people who get this right are going to do incredibly well and they have this kind of world historical opportunity. Uh, the people who don't get this right are maybe in, you know, going to see a lot of suffering in store. Um, but in a way, all of this stuff that people get very down about, how computers are ruining our brains, this and that, how you know Facebook is manipulating us, all of these memes about how it's so bad are actually, it's kind of like you know, Heidegger's you know, famous quoting of Holderland, this idea that the, you know, in the supreme danger is the saving power also. Is that how you see it? Well, yeah, to a degree. I mean, what, what does it even mean to do incredibly well uh, under these conditions? Um, in in an important sense, the good life is a very banal existence. Mm. You sort of wake up, you have your routines, you bounce your baby on your knee, you, you do work the day away, and then you sort of calm down at night, and you sort of love your family, and you go to bed, and you wake up, and you just keep doing it until you get old and die. And, uh, and that's just that kind of that natural rhythm of the good, fruitful, peaceful life. You do have a kind of anti-utopian angle, don't you? Yes. It's not, it's not heaven on earth. It's not supposed to be heaven on earth. There can't be heaven on earth. Mm. And even, you know, Jesus himself, only God, the father knows when the end times will come. Yeah. So. There's and also this idea of bringing the kingdom of heaven down of to course. earth, which I'm kind of more into. <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, look, you can you can do a lot to move closer yeah. to God and to to uh, not just worship your God, uh, but to glorify your God in the world. Right. Um, at least, you know, I'm using Christian language here and shamelessly so. Uh but I think it's it's you know the best way that Americans can start to get a handle on some of these these theological things. We're still you know more or less uh, Christian people um, in some ways. I mean, look, Christianity's always been susceptible to heresies. Gnosticism, which is one of the worst, has run through pretty much every denomination. You know, Protestant, Catholic, even the Orthodox have cosmism and stuff. And <laughs> and Judaism has had a long tradition, weird tradition of Gnosticism itself, um, and all those kind of Gnostic heresies. Uh, I think lead people to um, to believe under digital conditions that like actually it's not good news that we were created by God with you know incarnate and sold bodies that have certain properties bearing certain rights which governments must protect or else we're they're disfiguring a creation in in that sense but rather that being human is bad news that we're sort of ugly and limited and mortal and this is so gross and like why should I have to suffer and mm -hmm. you know a real failure to understand that like life is not supposed to be the good life all the time. Um, um, even in in the banal sense, you know, even in the sense of like of of the the natural peace um, and rhythm of life, uh, mm -hmm. even natural life is of course very painful in certain ways, uh, from birth to death. 
Uh, and people need to understand that, uh, you know, doing incredibly well under digital conditions um, means preserving your humanity, sufferings and all. Uh, there is no escape from these things uh, on this planet, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you have to uh, make an idol of, of your suffering sure. or make an idol of of your humanity or, you know, or take the view that, uh, that the best way to worship God is to punish ourselves. You right. Know? Sure. Um, and those impulses are, seem to be a permanent feature of, of life on earth because religion as Tocqueville said is the permanent state of mankind. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. And this is, this is something that is not, okay. uh, so, you know, yes, it is, it is an optimistic view. And I do think, yeah. you know, we're, we're blessed as Americans to have a tremendous amount of space, a lot of these other countries are quite small and you know if you are not computing you're being computed and if you are not uh, a large enough um civilization state if i can put it that way to be a major digital power you're going to be in someone else's you know on someone else's servers okay and so this is the responsibility in front of the first generation. So now tell us about this idea of year zero. What is that? Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Wes Yang, uh, who, who has a, a sub stack, um, and who's gotten some traction over the years talking about the successor ideology is kind of what this post liberal sort of blob is. Um, his, his sub stack is called year zero. Uh, for me, you know, this came from, uh, from what happened to Germany after World War II. Uh, you know, Berlin was just like a, a pile of rubble. Um, the uh, large numbers of, of powerful Germans had been killed off, you know, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, the Russians were sweeping in and, let's say, introducing their genetic material into the population. Um, and Germany was basically just annihilated. And so the, uh, the word, the term that was used by Germans to sort of start the clock over again, uh, my German pronunciation is not great, but, you know, Stunde Null, like, like hour zero, you know, hour zero of day zero of year zero. Uh, <clears throat> and, um, you know, Umberto Eco talks about some of this in uh, in an essay called uh, "Ur Fascism," and what he sought to do in that essay uh, was basically to begin laying the theoretical groundwork for saying, you know, if people remember too much, they basically become fascists. And if you have people on your hands who are fascists, then what you need to do is you need to basically wipe their memories mm. and start fresh. Um, and so, you know, in a year zero world, like we're not counting, uh, the, the year of our Lord, 1,945, we're, we're creating a new system of space and time. Uh, and that is the kind of thing that we are seeing now take place in the United States itself. Mm. Um, those in charge, uh, there are a couple different ruling factions. Um, but one thing that they seem to be willing to agree on, uh, <clears throat> is that, our collective and personal memory of America, of our biological lineage, our family lineages, um, our, our ethnic, uh, histories, um, all these things need to be, uh, erased from our memory banks, so to speak, uh, and replaced, you know, not quite with fantasies that used to be how it was done, but 
Now, I mean, we can clearly see that it, the idea is to replace memory with religious doctrine. Um, and that's, you know, that to me, it seems quite clear that like, this is what's going on with wokeness. You know, it's more than a, a new ideology or a new sort of political agenda. It is a, um, a crash course. It's sort of, you know, a Manhattan project. Um, among certain folks who are, you know, on the left, although even that term is this kind of like French revolution, industrial revolution thing that doesn't really map so well onto current, current era, um, uh, a race to establish a political theology, uh, powerful enough to assert human control over the bots. Uh, and so, you know, I, I credit these people with some kind of understanding of like what time it is and what world mm. we are in. Um, but what they are doing is uh, <laughs> rather than than establishing just any old political theology for a sort of refounding of America. Uh, they are establishing a, a, a cyborg theology, uh, one that says, like, in fact, you know, it's not just the patriarchy and heteronormativity and, you know, racism and class. It's not just that all those things are bad. Whiteness, you know, it's not enough to say that those things are bad. You have to go a step further and say, you know what? Our natural given bodies are not just either. Hmm. Justice is not to be found in the human, in our human identity. Hmm. We need to go beyond that. And the way to go beyond that is to merge our humanity with our machines in order to purify our spirit, our spark of consciousness, um, in a way that allows us to transcend our humanity and really become as gods. Uh, and that the way all of this is going to be controlled is by this becoming the official theology of the state. Um, and so the, the bots can be catechized into that theology the same as the people. Mm. And a social credit system can be put in place that keeps the whole thing together and makes sure that it's enforced and makes sure that you know a, a pre-crime becomes uh, a, 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 an improvement in social control on okay. just kind of spotting people after the fact and right. punishing them. Um, and, you know, you can see that China's doing this. Uh, they're, they're trying to remoralize their people through their social credit system. It's going to be Taoist. It's not going to be, you know, Buddhist. It's not really even going to be that Confucian. Um, I think that, that Taoism is really the only truly uh, sort of uh, aboriginal Chinese religion. And so it's not a surprise at all to see that they're turning to those resources to quickly establish sort of digital sovereignty. I mean, you look at Russia and the similar things are going on with, with Russian Orthodoxy, which is its own sort of special flavor of, mm. of Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, Europe is, is trying to sort of um, uh, impose uh, strictures on, on technology that ultimately have, I think uh, theological roots. The Vatican is is making some big plays in this area that don't get a lot of coverage in the U.S. But the Vatican considers itself, you know, a major digital player and wants to to, to strengthen mm. its role in in that way. Mm. Uh, and then in the Anglosphere, I mean, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all places that have gone, you know, just right. nuts over the past two years. Right. Uh, in a way that cannot just be ascribed to like, well, it's a lot of people who want to trust the science and they're doing their best. Okay. What's going on here is a new theological belief system. And so in the U.S., you know, we're not allowed to have a, a theocracy <laughs> that is inconsistent with our form of government. Yeah. It is constitutionally prohibited. So this is a special challenge for us because we can't sort of take the easy way to reasserting 
uh, human uh, authority over the digital entities in our territory. It's more complicated, but I, I you know, and, and we can talk about. I think Americans have some special advantages in in trying to ameliorate this problem. Uh, but yeah, that's that's where things. Are okay, going. fascinating. So in your model in America, then it's like there's the woke and big tech are kind of aligned on one side because their incentives are to build a kind of theological war on human memory, try to take control of the bots and institute this kind of like woke big tech uh, theology on top of the bots is the dream that that these people have on one side. And then on the other side, it's what? It's the it's Christians, it's Bitcoin. Am I going down the right direction here? Is that how you see it? Yeah, the the humanity preservers have logged on, you know. Right. Uh, but it's interesting <laughs> because on the you know on the cyborg side, <clears throat> despite the clear overlap um, and the the convergence, uh, there are some real tensions. Um, the The situation that we seem to have right now is uh, the the most powerful technologists are willing to tolerate any degree of of wokeness so long as they remain in control of the bots. And the most powerful Wokies are willing to tolerate any degree of sort of technologization of society and of our being, so long as they remain the priests of the cyborg theocracy. Right. And, you know, this is, a, this is an alliance, but there's a tension there because yep. at the end of the day, like someone's got to be at the top of the heap. Um, and so it's not surprising to me to see that many... Uh, CEOs at the highest level, you know, they don't really want to be CEOs. They want to be the priests of the cyborg order. Um, and there are some disagreements as to exactly what that should look like. And, you know, it'll be very intriguing to see. Uh, I mean, uh, Jeff Bezos has totally tapped out. <clears throat> Elon Musk openly refers to himself as living in a tech monastery now at this point. Um, and then you've got, you know, you've got the Googlers and all those guys, uh, and it's clear where they stand. They are dedicated to creating a map bigger than the territory, uh, and, uh, and to, you know, organize the world's information. No, that is, that should, that is being evil. You know, mm. one organizational structure for all the world's information on what basis it's going to be theological. And so, uh, so there's this tension there and, uh, and it, it, in some ways it, it will not be resolved peaceably. I think we can count on that, but in other ways it's already powerful enough. We already have the social credit system. We already have this sort of cyborg theocracy up and running. Uh, and, uh, and Americans just need to sort of accept that this is what's happened, uh, and take the steps that they can take right now with the competencies that they have right now. They don't need to be perfect. They don't need to be coders. They don't need to be PhDs. They don't need to be Spurgs. They don't need to be students. They don't need like, they can just start grabbing hold of these tools right now and use them right now to create markets and culture that are valuable and memorable and are going to preserve our humanity, strengthen our way of life, and, you know, and I think ultimately restore our form of government. Okay, so that's excellent. So say more about those tools. What 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 do you have in mind when you say that? Uh, I mean, Bitcoin is the easy one for me to talk about because this is where the book came from. Uh, you know, the uh, the publishing industry, for those who don't know, is a mess it's it's contracting and consolidating and and crumbling and becoming more theocratic as time goes on uh and it just would have been impossible to uh to to get this book published um in the form in which it was written uh by a mainstream publisher um in a timely fashion uh and that's to say nothing of the, the paper shortage supply the paper supply shortage 
that um, that delayed a lot of books uh, this year and uh, last year um, to the point where people are panicking because you know that Christmas book buying season uh, they were just going to whiff on it. They wouldn't be able to to to, to get the supply chains to work. Um, and so uh, I wrote this book in July of of twenty twenty one. Uh, I was fortunate to have three weeks to kind of just get it done. Um, <clears throat> and aside from the urgency of kind of what time I had to write it, uh, there was the urgency of like, a lot is happening right now and it needs to be talked about and it needs to be talked about in a way that people can use to just kind of quickly and competently get their arms around it to kind of understand what they're dealing with. Um, and what that means is the book has to come out fast enough that it isn't mm-hmm. overtaken by events. Uh, and I did try to write it, it you know, maybe not like, uh, like the Peloponnesian war was, was written to be a book for all of eternity. I mean, we'll see how, how this one does. Um, but something that, that would have some staying power, but it's still, you know, you got to intervene in the conversation right now because a lot of people are just lost and spinning their wheels and feel like no one's going to come save them. And no one's even going to sort of tap them on the shoulder and go like, you know, I get it. Like go over, come follow me this way. Come with me if you want to live. Um, and so the turnaround time on this book was uh, three months um, from uh, me sort of finishing the last endnote to it being uh, published on the blockchain. Um, that's very fast uh, for publishing by any standard. Of course. Um, and then, you know, publishing in a way that is not just um, on, uh, free from reliance on the big New York publishers, but free from reliance on Jeff Bezos. Of course. You know? Uh, and so this book is not on Amazon, uh, and it is, um, it is obviously exists in physical form. Uh, but that was what really got me excited about, uh, using Bitcoin for this book is, uh, we issued NFTs, um, sold out of, uh, a hundred, um, copies of the NFT version of the book, which is, I mean, this one turned out great, but the, uh, the NFT version is a uh, hardcover leather bound foil stamped, you know, it's. Very nice. Very, nice. very aesthetic. Um, and it'll last, you know, longer than I will on this planet. Uh, these books are built to last. Uh, 600 bucks a pop. Uh, some of that went to, you know, cost of production. Some of it went to me. Um, and 25 hours uh, after they went on sale, poof, they were gone. Still a few on the secondary market at canonic.xyz, you, you know, if you are yeah. willing to, uh, to lay down some money. But it's a, a small price to pay to be human forever. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this this... What was exciting to me about, about this process was not just that it relieved me of these sort of sad burdens of the publishing industry where, you know, grown men are reduced to like begging their extended family members who they haven't talked to in 10 years on via email. Please, you know, I need that Amazon review, bro. Like, please, like first week sales is so important. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just really you, your heart sinks when you see these things in your inbox because you're like these people are just pleading with you to like move your finger a little bit to the right and click on something. And you're like, I don't know. I'm too busy. Like I'm not going to do it. And, and it's, it's very sad. Right. Um, so aside from that, uh, really the, the excitement for me was that with this book, the medium really is the message and yeah, this, the content in the book matters, but, um, as Marshall McLuhan reminds us, the, the audience is the formal cause of the work and the audience is, uh, is people who are really more or less jumping up and down at this point, begging, crying out for leaders, for yeah. leaders with some authority and some experience who can be trusted uh, to guide them in, in a fruitful direction in the future. Uh, and so this book is on the blockchain and you can buy it in the Bitcoin. And why is that good? It's good because it shows that ordinary red-blooded Americans with their heads screwed on more or less straight 
they don't need to be experts. They don't need to be ethically pure. They don't need to be, um, you know, members of this kind of priestly class in any mm-hmm. sense. Um, they just need to understand uh, that the systems that are enclosing them uh, tighter and tighter are bad for them mm-hmm. um, and hostile to them. Uh, and that they can right now start using technology again in the way that Americans used to use technology really intimately, get their hands greasy, get their hands dirty, get Tinkering. under the hood, yeah. tinker it. It can be done right now. And the, and the payoff, yeah, you know, Bitcoin is a way of making your friends rich. If you do it right, that's great. You know, we, we do need to sort of mint a new class of, 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 of elites in this country, elites who are not 75 and up in age. Um, but really it's, you know, it's this bigger picture. It's about ordinary people sort of reorganizing and getting those, those, um, those social energies, those commercial energies moving in. Heck yeah. America is a commercial Republic. This is who we are as a civilization. Other countries, you know, smaller countries, countries with, with 2000 years of, uh, of history behind them. Yeah. Maybe there's, maybe the better path for them is one that looks a lot more like that sort of like lowered horizon, Catholic social teaching, small is beautiful, you know, kind of pastoral, like maybe so in America, it's just not going to be that way. We have different cultural DNA, different civilization. Alexis de Tocqueville covered all these things. You know, we're always sort of swinging back and forth between brooding isolation and frenetic competition Mm. between public and private. Uh, and there's no way, and this goes all the way back to St. Augustine, you know, this is why we're a Protestant nation is because we have this sort of theological framework already like beaten into our, into our character and you can't cure it. It's not an illness to be, to be cured. It's not a problem to be solved. Uh, it's not an equation to be balanced. Uh, it's really just something that, that needs to be ameliorated. And, uh, what that means is getting people into the habit and the custom of mixing and intermingling their energies to pull, you know, to get, get hearts to interact reciprocally, um, and expand. Uh, this is all just straight out of Tocqueville and we have powerful digital technologies right now that allow us to do that in a way that builds fresh new institutions, found new institutions, on a digital footing that are still quintessentially and recognizably American in the best of ways. So you're obviously, you know, speaking music to my ears and a lot of people in the audience are some type of independent intellectual people writing their own books, people trying to, uh, you know, carve out these really unique niches for themselves in the digital economy outside of academia or, or what have you. So, I mean, something worth pausing on and, and talking about for people who might not know is that you did publish a few traditionally published books. You, I think you had a book, I think your book on Tocqueville was with uh, St. Martin. St. Martin's, right? Right. Yeah, so you have this experience uh, publishing in the traditional publishing economy, and you chose to do this book independently. You chose to pursue this path because of the genuine, you know, superior affordances of of this. So I'm, I'm curious, like, if you have anything to share with because we have in our audience a lot of people who are interested in this kind of stuff, doing this kind of stuff, and trying to figure out the right models and the right the right approaches. I'm just curious if there are any kind of uh, random lessons or observations you had in doing this type of experience for the first time, working with Ardian from Canonic. Just w- anything you observed or lessons you want to share with the audience, because this is very uh, of interest to my audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll start at kind of the, the most cosmic brain level here, because these things are, are interrelated. You know, Ardian is a close friend and, um, and a, a fellow sort of Balkan boy. Um, I'm, I'm Greek on my father's side okay. and he's, he's an elbow, you know, uh, he, <laughs> for my, people who uh, don't know, Ardian is the founder of the, the, this independent press canonic that publishes books by people like James on, um, be on the, 
Bitcoin BSV chain, basically. So we don't need to go into the whole background of that, but basically it allows for cheaper transactions than on the BTC chain. And uh, he's had great success. He also published uh, Zero HP Lovecraft. I think actually I, my book is on there. I I, I gave him uh, that's right. to do it at some that's point. Right. I didn't I didn't invest a lot of effort into it, like a big launch like you did though. So um, that's just the background for people. That well, the, name, he, the name he, of the press yeah. is Canonic, and our mutual friend is Artie, and he's he's here in Austin. We'll have him on the show for sure. And you don't need to like the friction is a very frictionless process, but it's it's not supposed to be easy. It's not based around right. an, an ethos of uh, of um, convenience. Uh, and so, you know, I'll, I, I guess now just because you're you're guiding me so well, yeah. I'll start at the sort of granular. Nice. Um, you know, I, one of the one of the things, the lessons that I learned is people kind of really show you who they are when you give them a new task uh, that has a big payoff. Um, but there is sort of like there will be a little pain. You it's know, weird you, and confusing. You yeah. might yeah. have to kind of train your muscles and right. your mind to do something different. Uh, you know, I, I would occasionally get DMs from people like, James, I'm trying to get your book. It's impossible. And I'm like, well, here's the link. And they're like, well, that's not what I mean. I mean, it's just like, it's too hard. And like, I can't, I can't figure it out. And I'm like, well, okay, here's the link to the fact, you know? Right. And they're like, well, th- uh, that's not really what I mean. And I'm like, people are so used to everything being super smooth due to these like psychotic uh, engineers and, and UIs that just are trying to make everything so frictionless that we're accustomed to anything that's not super frictionless. It's like, uh, what do we, do? what, uh, what? So yeah. I say like, look, just like, I am here for you. Tell me what the problem is (laughs) and we can fix it. We'll get through this. And the response was like, well, Canonic won't accept my crypto wallet that I already have. And I don't want to create a new one. And it's like, bro, you took me from this is impossible to, I don't want to over the course of like, you know, a five minute sort of like, you know, tech support DM chat. And it, you know, and, and I don't know whether whether people who have that experience have are sort of going to wake up one morning and go like, oh, he was right all along. Like, yeah. I should just, you know, take a risk on something that feels a little uncomfortable and see if, if there's right. a payoff. But, you know, like, it is not supposed to be easy, but it's not that difficult. You, there's no right. credential. It's not rocket science. It's yeah. not rocket science. And the irony is that probably everything big and important in the future is going to require you to do somewhat weird things through new workflows and new processes. Um, that's that's what's going to make it so that you're ahead of other people, basically. Like, well, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, and I like to tell uh, people who sort of are leaning more toward the, the being, being tempted by transhumanism, you know, what I tell them is like, we can talk about, you know, radical life extension or whatever. I mean, they're like, people live to be 400, 500 years old in the old Testament. This is not, you know, this is very, very strange and it would be very unprecedented and it could probably cause untold misery and weirdness that we can't uh, sort of envision up front. Uh, but it's not a fundamental attack on on our human being, right? However, we might want to get really good at being human before we try to go one step beyond, right? And that you know seems like a big claim, but it comes all the way down to this level that we're talking about here, where it's like if you are not good enough as a human being to accept and admit that when you say this is impossible, what you really mean is, but I don't want to. 
like then you cannot level up (laughs) into this technological environment that you need to be able to master in a theological way in order to make sure that your human being and all of the sort of culture and civilization that you take for granted is not swept away and replaced with this sort of cyborg enclosure. No, it's a really good point. It's almost like getting out of this cyborg enclosure is going to require over the next several years a lot of learning how to click around your computer in ways you've never done before basically it's not rocket science it's not code it's not coding at all it's it's just simply going outside of the guided ui flows that psychotic engineers have arranged for you for for commercial exploitation learning how to basically click your mouse in uh some some somewhat new and disorienting ways it's like that that's basically going to be the everyday digital activity through which like this new digital kind of counterforce is built um and i have found like i've become a, i've become very interested in urbit i've become kind of more convicted around urbit in in recent months and so i've been doing a lot of work bringing my friends onto urbit and people in the other life community onto urbit and i have found something very interesting in my observation i wonder if you've seen this is that the little bit of extra friction required to kind of navigate into these new worlds, whether it's buying books on Bitcoin or, you know, joining Urbit or what have you, it's actually a kind of positive self-selection effect where it pulls out the people who like to tinker, right? It, it kind of excites some people. I've noticed, sure, maybe you lose a few people who can't be bothered, but it actually excites and energizes the people who find a certain kind of autonomy, a certain kind of thrill and curiosity through clicking around these new apps and these new technologies and new ways. And I have actually reflected on that a lot lately and thinking, you know, the more the more weird little tasks and friction your your creative technological uh, adventures require, it's almost like the better in a way uh, because it, it pulls out the real pioneers. It pulls out the real tinkerers. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that and people can choose their own level of involvement and uh, and it's good to have options. Uh, you know, there's a, a footnote buried at the end of, of Democracy in America that I like to to sort of mangle because I can't quite exactly remember the quote. Um, but uh, basically, you know, Tocqueville says mar- forcing all of, of uh, mankind to m- march down a single path toward a single end is a mortal idea and basically sterile one. Mm. Whereas uh, allowing uh, people to march through an infinite number of paths toward the same destination is a divine idea as mm. in one that's that's really fruitful and generative and consistent with who, who we created beings are. Uh, and you know, and and for all of my enthusiasm around Bitcoin, uh, the the reason to get a lot of people using it, in my opinion, uh, is that it's not just a culture tool; <clears throat> it's a weapon. And you know, I know that like uh, that that Ethereum is is billed as you know a world computer in the making, but honestly, I think Bitcoin got there first. And that is why the regime wants to 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 capture it and defang it and domesticate it and turn it into just one more asset class in its basket of goods because it's not just like any other asset. Um, it is a world computer and it is a powerful weapon. And if the the cyborg theocrats get a hold of Bitcoin, they will use it as a weapon to try to perfect their their system. Um, and so, you know, the, but they're definitely not going to get it right. They're so behind and they're kind of against it all. So they, they drag their feet on all of it. Right. There is, I think a real prospect of a serious and severe social and political conflict over who controls Bitcoin. Okay. So how would that play out in your model? 
well, I mean, I think we can see right now sort of like who is on the side of the Borg and who is on the side of the humans. Mm. Um, I think that's going to be the, well, so the boundary so of the conflict. There's an interesting discussion here, though, because it might seem obvious to you because you've been thinking about this very carefully for a while. But I think for a lot of people, that's not obvious at all. And here's why. The cyborg theological project, this war on memory that you described, they couch themselves in humanistic terms. And they will say that it's Bitcoin that's the 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 demon, the cybernetic enclosure. There, there is this widespread perception, and it's not crazy. It, it, there's a certain kind of in, in intuitive quality to it that Bitcoin looks like this kind of cybernetically growing system, this super intelligence, as it were, that is over and above human heads. It kind of is a self-enforcing governance system in a way. That, that, that's kind of what blockchains are. And so in the public imagination, I think a lot of people will naturally think that if there is a, uh, a, a demonic, uh, cybernetic, cyborg theocracy in, in trapping us, it is Bitcoin or, or crypto more generally. And that the woke people, the big tech HR workers, they're going to all be looking like the humanists, the people who just want to save the little guy from the, 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 the big crypto cybernetic enclosure so how do you think about that for people well there's a lot here and you know this is this is not a podcast on on the the culture war of the different coins and so I, yeah, yeah i will not hijack it in that way but i think it's beyond dispute that if you just look at what has kind of become a btc like the reason why this book is is on the bsv chain and not on the, the btc chain is because you can't do this on the btc mm. chain and that's like no you know i'm not mm -hmm. like insulting anyone yeah, uh, yeah it's just a fact of the matter and so i would obviously go with the coin that allowed me to do the book and the, that's why i did the thing so but if you look at what btc has become it's become the sort of like well you just hold on to it and the number go up and then then paradise arrives on planet earth um and i just think that that is, you know, not only is that kind of like a, a theological mistake, but it is a way that the the regime can really just kind of bribe people to sit it out, hmm. to sit out the the fight over is it going to be ordinary human beings voluntarily associating who control this technology, or is it going to be the cyborg superstructure? Um, and I think, you know, too many good people are sort of like, well, you know, I'm doing my part. I'm, I'm meeting my responsibilities by sitting off on top of my mountain and achieving enlightenment by hodling. Like that's, that's a missed opportunity. Mm. Um, and it's true, you know, I mean, the, the importance of Bitcoin as a weapon um, is that what it is not and what it should not be is an idol. This is not something that is, that is pure and perfect in some way. It's not here to be worshipped. And as far as the protocol, you know, the Bitcoin protocol is, I mean, proof of work. Uh, trust is established within the network on the basis of uh, computers competing to solve a math problem. Like what could be more Protestant than that? So, you know, there's like a real theological resonance here uh, between Bitcoin and America. And I think that's why, you know, America is the place by far uh, where, where Bitcoin is flourishing the most uh, as it should. And that speaks to its, its uh, cultural compatibility with the character of the American people, uh, you know what I would what I would counsel uh, with uh, with in terms of caution around Bitcoin. The same thing that I would do with Urbit. This is not supposed to be a, a this is not an exercise in purity or purification. It just needs to be good. It doesn't need to be pure. 
um, and it shouldn't be worshipped, and it shouldn't be thought of as, oh, thank God we have this technology because then all of our problems can either be solved or, or zapped away. Um, and there, you know, this is the same thing I would say with Urbit. The value of Urbit is that it is good, that it works, that it gets people's blood moving, and it gets social energies and commercial energies moving around it. What is not good is to, is to start thinking in terms of like we're going to achieve perfect determinacy with this code. It's going to be neutral in this sort of cosmic way right. where it, where it achieves this kind of perfection, and that our you know what we're going to do, our human agency is going to kind of be oriented around just kind of partake in the perfection of this pure entity um, that leads in bad theological directions um, and I think that it leads toward ultimately a, a worship of mathematics um, and math is a tool that we should use for human purposes rather than the other way around yeah I hear you on all that I mean there, I'm sure there are some uh, I'm friends with some a lot of BTC maxis and I understand all those arguments and I actually respect them a lot I, I personally think that you know that it, it's quite possible that BTC will absorb all of the monetary premia in in the long run and, and but I, I'm with you that basically I'm not like I don't care about repping any particular blockchain that's not of interest to me and I'm ultimately just interested in I think people should have an experimental attitude towards all of these things and just play around with things basically when it comes to new technologies when it comes to the different blockchains and their different affordances I think it's crazy to be religious about like oh my gosh minting an nft on bsv is evil because Craig Wright I think all of that is kind of ridiculous I think like people especially intellectuals and creators should have a very very open-minded uh, experimentalist attitude it's the attitude of the tinkerer you should be playing around with all these different tools testing them for what they can do and and having fun with them and not being not being so purist about it so i, I agree with that yeah i think that's right and you know I, I mean i'm definitely not here to sort of ruin anyone's good time even <laughs> though if you become obsessed with a good time you're going to find yourself having a very bad time in in short order so mm. you know you want to you want to do do sell, sell the monkeys and, and do the whole thing like that's you know i please don't don't let me are stop. you saying you don't have a milady I do not. No, okay. I, I do not. Uh, but it's true that, you know, people are like, but James, like BSV, like, but what about Craig Wright, bro? Yeah. What about Craig? And I'm like, well, I mean, to be, you know, no disrespect, but like, I am a much more important <laughs> figure than, than Craig Wright. Nice flex. It, <laughs> nice. But, well, because... No, that's a good answer. Yeah. But why? This is a guy who... Um, who has dedicated himself to the proposition that the law is even more important and powerful than Bitcoin. And that, you know, the thing that's going to save us is the law. Yeah. And he's going to go find the judge and he's going to, through the, the force of, of rash, of force of reason, you know, convince this judge that the law is on his side. And that is what's going to determine sort of who gets the coin and who doesn't. And it's like, this is, you know, if, if people start acting this way, like they're going to find themselves hung out to dry and probably even strung up by the judge and the law, which in so many ways is a captive of, of the regime. But really, Really, when you get down to it, you know, like the laws of men are not what are going to give us the authority and the confidence and the sanity and the grounding that we need to reassert true, competent, responsible mastery over our machines. That is what is at stake. And that is what I'm talking about. And that's why I'm more important than Craig Wright. Not because <laughs> I'm so great, but because like, you know, a, a normal person can assess the situation and see the stakes and, you know, you got to make the right choice. Hell yeah, totally. So in the book, something you talk about towards the end is this idea of Bitcoin data centers, which you kind of use as an, as an interesting term of art. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about crypto and Bitcoin and all of that. But 
going back to the book a little bit, could you expand a little bit on this concept of Bitcoin de- data centers? It seems to be, as we talked about earlier, there you, you see a lot of the, the contemporary conflict around memory in particular. There, that's a through line of the book, I would say, that the memory history, this seems to be a, a, an important touchstone for you. And there's something in my reading of it, if, I, if I'm correct, that you see in Bitcoin and crypto something promising when it comes to uh, the preservation of memory, the preservation of history. Am I onto something? Could you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll, I'll dig into this by talking a little bit more about uh, Urbit since I have a Excellent. strange suspicion that- I was going to ask be, you about yeah. that since I know you're interested in it. Yeah. yeah so, uh, you know, I think you know um, uh, uh, Logan Allen and those guys yeah. pretty well, right? So, uh, so there's this uh, sort of Urbit spinoff called Terrell, which is, uh, which is like the pay rail. Um, I wouldn't call it a spinoff. It's a startup being built on Urbit. Right. right. I guess it's the like Urbit guys kind of like exited Urbit so they could focus specifically on this. Yeah, it was Tlon engineers who were building Urbit kind of split off to do a startup. But but that's right. Thank you. Yes, we got to be clear on the provenance here. Uh, Pedigree is very important. No, no, just it sounded a little bit like they were competing with Urbit (laughs) or something. So it was just a little bit of a... To be be very clear, yes, this is all all simpatico. Yeah. Um, And what is exciting to me about Tyrrell is... um, uh, finding ways to uh, sort of harmonize um, Bitcoin and Urbit is, I think, something that's very powerful uh, because um, what are your alternatives? And your alternatives are like, well, Amazon Web Services. And, you know, I mean, I think any sort of person who understands what we've been talking about <clears throat> really has to take one look at, at AWS and say, like, we need to work toward a future where that is not part of the equation. Um, and you know, you got to sort of like you, 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 you go to, you go to work with the platform you have and you we're building these things sort of in real time and people only have so much time in the day and we don't want to turn into robots trying to outrun the robots. Uh, so all that's, you know, fairly complicated in that sense, but simple in the sense that, you know, Bitcoin gives, uh, not just Bitcoiners, but you know, really anyone who's able to sort of figure out how to plug in. Uh, the ability to uh, create and maintain uh, data centers, uh, data centers that are, are oriented not around, you know, organize the world's information, Google, not around like uh, Amazon Web Services, which runs uh, basically all of the deep states information in the US and the UK. You know, what form of government is that? Uh, let's not talk about that. Right. Um it gives people, ordinary people, as well as, you know, super geniuses or whatever, um, the ability to uh, run and protect their own data on their own uh, sort of data centers. And um, and that's important because if you're not computing, you are being computed. And you don't want to be just like, you know, trapped inside of a television inside of someone else's data center, which is what's happening to a lot of Americans. Um, and so... Uh, you know, the idea of the the Bitcoin data center is that uh, what we have here is a path to preserve the uh, the fundamental character of America and its civilization as a commercial republic of people who uh, for whom it is self-evident, let's say, uh, that theologically um, we are incarnate and sold beings endowed by our creator with properties um, which have rights attached to them, uh, and and which rights uh, must be respected uh, and protected uh, by the state, by law, by our fellow citizens, uh, in order to prevent our human beings from being disfigured and abused. Right on. So, in a way, what you call in the book Bitcoin data centers 
it is actually very similar to Urbit. You could even think of Urbit somewhat interchangeably, possibly. Well, I mean, I think this is why it's, it is very intriguing and why I'll be watching very closely to see just how Bitcoin and Urbit play together. Um, I think, you know, uh, the, the decentralized aspect of Urbit is one um, that may end up proving to be more fruitful and generative in relation to Bitcoin than on its own. And, you know, and honestly, I mean, I don't think, um, I don't think anyone should be, again, it's, this is not about purity. This is not about creating the perfect platform, the perfect code. And to the exclusion of all other things, we need to sort of intermix and intermingle these things because that's really what keeps these commercial energies flowing and what gives people the opportunity to say like, you know what, I'm going to create a thing and I'm going to start a business and I'm going to create a brand and I'm going to sort of like hold up a symbol that combines, you know, art and theology and, and commerce and business and uh, mathematics in a way that it can be distilled down into a particular symbol, which you can hold up and sort of people can understand it right away. They can kind of capture at first glance what it means and that they can begin to rally around and gravitate around. Uh, that's why, you know, beyond the book, I mean, one of the things that I'm working on right now is uh, this new tech lifestyle magazine, Return. Boom, that was going to be my very next question. Uh, and the, why I find this to be so captivating and important is because, you know, I mean, everyone knows that like tech journalism right now is in, in the, the, the dumpster to the point where a lot of technologists now are like, well, we'll just have to do it ourselves. We'll just have to be our own PR people. And I don't think they should have to like wear two hats like that. Like they've got their hands full doing what it is that they do best. So there's this huge void in the scene where it's like we don't want these tech journalists who are just basically like self-entitled Wokies who want to just like take these like bros down a notch and we really don't want people who are trying to you know build digital institutions that are going to last also having to like run over to their blog and like try to talk to people directly you know they can do that if they want to but there's this whole sort of green field here uh, for for brands and for businesses and enterprises to organize under a kind of framework um, that intellectually and accessibly uh, shows people kind of like models for them, like how do we live well in a digital age? How do we preserve a more human way of life while we're also rebuilding on digital foundations? And that's what Return is all about. Right on. So that's return.life. People can check that out. That, that's up and in action as we speak. I'm curious, because we have in my audience a lot of, as I said, kind of independent intellectuals, very idiosyncratic thinkers working on a variety of really interesting topics and projects. I'm curious if you could maybe say more about what you think are the most interesting and promising themes, research agendas that you think are being neglected, that you think uh, the return mag would be interested in possibly receiving submissions on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you if you just go over to the site, you'll see that we have a kind of content tax taxonomy, uh, and it, it ranges from play to faith to to kin to uh, just straight digital. So you know, we're very interested in things like profiles, uh, narrative, nonfiction, uh, gadget reviews, company reviews, um, uh, you know, kind of memoirish kind of stuff. Um, video game reviews, uh, there's just so much out there and it's really just waiting for the human element for people to come in and speak in a, in an accessible way with some authority and some humanity about their experiences in digital life experiences that they've had as founders, as, as, you know, as, um, as consumers, as producers, uh, so as, kind of as like, members of families. Uh, am I going in the right direction to think kind of like wired, but for based Christian dudes? 
Well, you know, I, I mean, that's that's a lot of baggage to hang around, <laughs> <laughs> hang around a publication. Uh, but am I, but, am know, I going are, in the right direction? Yeah, there. we yeah. are the we are the pro humans who you know who take religion as seriously as we take technology, uh, and who recognize sort of what time it is and and what are the the preconditions for for refounding uh, you know America on a digital footing in a way that's that's not just going to be sturdy, but is going to be fun and fruitful and yeah. generative and exciting and really get people moving and keeping them in a healthy kind of motion a productive kind of motion. and do you is it multi-faith or does is it more explicitly christian uh n- we do not have uh we don't have an official an official religion sure no, sure that wouldn't be very american but uh, i just mean but, for the purposes of people thinking about you know whether this is something that they that, that would be a fit for them um yeah i mean if if you are christian and you are into technology and you have things to say about this like the door is that's very, basically very, what it comes very, down to. Okay. very much okay. open okay. for you I, uh, I know i know that in building a brand you don't want to be super maybe uh, aggressively specific like i just was so you're you're not necessarily signing off on my descriptions but um just trying to cut to the quick of it it sounds Sure, like and you know, and I think there are a lot of Christians right now who are beginning to sort of recognize what what time it is and what the stakes are, and are looking for a way of of organizing themselves together. So you know, return is is more than just a publication. Not that a publication is bad, but you know, in isolation, it can be pretty limited. And this is also a membership community. So you know, we've got a couple different tiers, going from sort of basic one all the way up to you know, strategic partnerships. Uh, and they are paid because we're we're delivering you value. I mean, there's value that you are going to get, and it's going to be on and off the internet, inside the pages of the magazine, and outside. You know, events, uh, special items, um, lots of lots of stuff that we'll be offering and are offering. Uh, and so you can see that on the website, and the uh, the print quarterly will be dropping uh, fairly soon. I, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to. Uh, steal from my own thunder, uh, but it's coming and it's looking good, and I'm really proud of it. Okay, cool. So a mystery on on the date of release, but print a print mag is coming. And you know something we haven't talked about that people may or may not know is that you were the founder of the American Mind publication, right? Uh, co co founder. Co founder. Yes. Okay, right. That's right. Um, and so you have a real history of 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 thinking about uh, publication branding, uh, thinking about these different types of uh, digital projects, and. That's interesting because people, I, I don't know if people listening would necessarily have known that in advance. I'm curious, anything interesting you think about kind of the, the future and the next stages of self-published books on Bitcoin or um, kind of digital, you know, kind of small startup digital brands? Yeah, you know, I, I was born in 1979. Um, Julian Assange called 1979 year zero. Um, obviously, you know, uh, 1979 was sort of like Smashing Pumpkins' biggest hit. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of weirdness surrounding that year. Um, and I don't know if that makes me an elder millennial or a sort of baby Gen Xer. Um, but it's been, it's been a fascinating place to be in, uh, in history. Um, you know, seeing Fight Club in the theaters and kind of getting it immediately, um, you know, being in, I, I did a semester in London in 1999 and the millennium dome was going up and now it's just in tatters and crumbling and, you know, seeing just kind of that whole arc of, <clears throat> of the end of one history and the beginning of another one. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just, uh, I was just hanging, um, after we had a return launch party, uh, last night. Um, and, uh, you know, found myself, uh, just having a sort of finishing off the night, um, at the, uh, at the apartment of an herbiter, um, who, uh, 
who revealed a collection of dozens of like zines from the nineties, like tech zines. Um, and I, you know, I, I was sure that I would never see those kinds of magazines, much less hold the real thing in my hand ever again in my life, because so much of the most adventurous and confident and curious and probing and outside the box, but still accessible culture uh, right up until the very end of the nineties was just obliterated mm. in the two thousands, just really wiped away. And, and nine 11 was part of that. And, you know, uh, the, the like in sync Britney Spears, boy band thing was was a part of that um there were many things at work there uh corn was a part of that <laughs> uh but there was a real there was a real cultural break and being you know a uh, an elder millennial or whatever um i have felt very acutely that my little slice my little cohort there situated in in time uh, is like a very thin thread connecting um, zoomers and everything after with boomers and everything before Mm. we are a small generation in size, you know, dwarfed by the boomers and dwarfed by the millennials Um, and watching, you know, the, the boomers suffer in the way that they're suffering and watching the millennials suffer in the way that they're suffering and, you know, the kind of exennials, no one really seems that interested in how we suffer, you know. Mm. But, and again, not that suffering is, is bad, but one of the ways in which, you know, I have suffered as a member of that cohort is feeling that, you know, we, we have inherited this precious sort of collective memory and have this sort of perspective on it that is rare and that is hard to communicate in part because audiences have their minds on other things. And most of them are themselves of a a much larger and different cohort. And they feel sort of lost in their own sea. Um, And what that has meant was, I think a lot of experimentation and a lot of frustration. You know, I was in a number of bands in LA for a number of years and, uh, you know, the music is up there on Spotify. If you really want, what kind of music did you play? Uh, space gaze is what we're calling it. So really like shoegaze meets like Brit pop. Okay. Very, very melodic, very hooky, lots of sort of big melodies. I did not know that. Uh, vast asteroid is, is the band. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, very difficult to like break through. I mean, even in LA, you can pack a room out full of people. They pay the money, they drink the drinks, they stand right there. They're watching you through through your whole set and you finish and you know, they're like, woo, you know, it's just a very drained Mm. scene and watching. I mean, you know, I would sit there in, you know, Starbucks in, 1999 2000 whenever it was and like la weekly was like a big deal it was like a cultural artifact that had lifeblood in it and you know you'd see this like really aesthetic photo of marilyn manson on the cover and you'd like want to know like you want to hear what artists had to say because they had something to say 
and eat, whether you agreed with them or disagreed with them or thought that they were like doing it right or actually kind of like disturbingly wrong, um, there was still a baseline of relevance uh, that has really been systematically drained out of so much of popular culture and 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 not so popular culture. Um, and I think that's another reason why the theology of wokeness has flowed in because it gives people a feeling that they have something worth saying something real something that's that addresses the ultimate issues confronting human beings yeah um and so you know all of this is a way of saying that for me like it it has been and continues to be quite personal feeling like like as a result of my my sort of weird experience in this you know generational schema um i do have this kind of precious set of of cultural memories that i've inherited and i do have a sort of cultural sensibility about the cultural about um commercial aesthetics and branding um and that as we look around people are so desperate to be to be reoriented in a way that's going to be fruitful and generative and fun uh what they need are are better brands they Mm. need better branding and they need people who have the the wherewithal and the competence and um and the credibility to, to take a big swing on those competencies and to hold up a sign and a symbol that people can recognize and rally around. And so that's what I've tried to do with this book. That's what I've done with return and the American mind and, you know, and other brands. And, uh, and I feel that, you know, this is how we win. That's awesome, man. Love it. Love it. And this was a lot of fun. I want to thank you for coming out again. I will put in the show notes to the video and the podcast. I'll put a link to the book, Human Forever. I'll also put a link to return.life, the new magazine. And uh, unless you have any other closing words, I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, just to say that I'm really grateful for, you know, for, for your, your care and your interest and, you know, and for yours too. <laughs> All of you out there. Thank you. Seriously. Awesome, dude. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Pound it out. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it. 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 Review. I really appreciate it.